Welcome back to On Stage at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe, a bi-weekly podcast featuring clips from some of the events at our downtown Manhattan bookstore. In this episode, we have clips from the launch for A Book of Uncommon Prayer, our Tumblr Writers BEA Party, and Triple Canopy Presents On Folly. I'm podcast producer Colin Drowen, and I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Until then, make sure to subscribe and check out some of our past episodes if you've missed them. Enjoy! On May 19th, we hosted the launch for A Book of Uncommon Prayer, an anthology of everyday invocations. Here, Catherine Lacey reads her two prayers from the collection. For those currently much drunker than they meant to get. O Lord of restraint and common sense, going back in time and not having that third complimentary cocktail would have been a good idea, but going back in time as we understand the laws of your earthly kingdom is not an option, so here we are, drunker than we meant to be. Protect us, O Lord from saying things we will regret later, no matter how honest or civil these things now seem. Forgive us, O Lord, for enjoying the taste of margaritas instead of paying attention to the increasingly impaired mental condition and physical abilities of our bodies, which we realize are living temples to your creation, O Lord. Deliver us from that other person at the party who also got drunker than they meant to get. And do not let us share a cab back to Brooklyn with them, for we both have a history of making out with each other when we are drunker than we meant to be, and we don't really have time for that anymore. Oh, Lord, we are not getting any younger. Lord, amen. For the unlikely heroes of apocalypse movies, thank you, Lord, for the beginning of every global ending. Toilet water flushing counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere. Too much lightning or not enough wind. Tsunamis littering beaches with old plas- with the old plastic of dead jellyfish. Birds flying rabid into European plazas. Wolves dying of inexplicable disease above the permafrost. Thank you, Lord, for the wolves and for their dying. Because how else would the lowly lupine expert become the only man who can possibly save the world? We need him, every him, the humble analyzer of DNA, the quiet arbalist, the loneliest orthonologist, the crypto-meteorologist in bifocals. We need to see each man close his laptop and take a bullet or an asteroid to the chest. Let him turn away from his swivel chair, throw off his lab coat, clutch his sheath and charts, and surge forth into the gloaming. Let him sound the alarm. Let him rise to his mythos. Let him claim the junior high school that will someday bear his name. And thank you, Lord, for our crypto-meteorologist's estranged wife, our lupine expert's disabled son, because they will make our heroes men again. Let them be trapped by terrorists, buried by too much snowfall over the shelled ruins of iconic skyscrapers. Let their peril drive our heroes into snowplows or on speedboats so they can ride over the frosted or flooded eastern seaboard while their sidekicks seduce the beautiful daughters of third world presidents. Thank you for those fool's errands, Lord. We would feel nothing without them. And thank you for the inscrutable and gratuitous technology that makes them possible. For screens that are played like pianos and keyboards that glow in the dark of the night. For computers that hold crawl spaces like circuit-studded stomachs. 
Thank you for those spaces in which the crypto meteorologist does the right thing and types the right code, or maybe punches a shark in the face if he has to, if a limb has to be lost. Thank you for the end of every world, Lord. May no ending happen too quickly. May the major cities of the world fall like dominoes in slow-mo. Give us the Leaning Tower finally crashing into Pisa. Give us Big Ben exploded and Cairo on fire. Give us Tokyo businessmen fighting dolphins in the street. Give us Manhattan, give Manhattan to hell and give Manhattan to heaven and Los Angeles to hell. Give us our meteorologist and his marriage a second chance in all the wreckage. Give him a love that can withstand statistically impossible tsunamis and jellyfish strewn on the sand like scarves and armies of brown birds flying straight from the white hot eye of the sun. Let his sidekick fuck that dictator's daughter at least once before the second meteor hits. Let their progeny start the colony on Mars. But dear Lord, in the end, at the last, please let the second meteor hit. Don't deny anyone his high school, his junior high school. Give our secondary heroes their embryonic Eves and Adams. Let everyone fall into the asteroid chasm. Let everyone blister in the too close sun. Let everyone perish. Let no one live. On May 28th, we hosted the Tumblr Writers BEA party. In this clip, Julie Bunton reads from her forthcoming novel, Marlena. Tell me what you can't forget, and I'll tell you who you are. This is the moment that plays on repeat, the one I can't stop. It's there when I switch off my apartment light, when a girl with blonde hair jostles into me on the subway platform, when one of those songs comes on in a coffee shop or a grocery store when I'm trying, like always, to be someone who doesn't have my memories. It isn't the most important one, but it's the one that stays. Marlena and I are in Peter's car. The springs burst gloriously, stupidly into summer, and we're wearing drugstore flip-flops, hair in ponytails and tacky with salt at the temples, breath all cigarettes and cherry lip gloss and wine coolers and Lay's potato chips. I press my toes into the windshield like I always do when it's just Marlena and me. Our windows are rolled all the way down. The wind loosens my hair, sends it in tangles across my face so that everything I see is broken. We're on our way to the beach for a normal day, for sunburns and holding our breath underwater, for the white lines our bikini halters will stamp onto our chests and sand in our ears for the rest of the week. We're not talking about our parents or the secrets Marlena's keeping from me. We're listening to Joni Mitchell, singing along like we know what wisdom is. I sing so loud Marlena can't hear herself, tells me to stop giving her a headache. But I don't. I want to see what it feels like to be the star. Marlena puts pressure on the gas. The car climbs the big hill on a dead-end road that leads to the lake. The speedometer inches up. We pass 60, the limit on country roads, and hit 80 within a minute, the wind drowning the music. We go faster and faster, and I giggle a little and tell her to slow, slow down, and a few seconds later to slow the fuck down. And when she doesn't seem to hear me, I say that she's crazy and that she's scaring me and that I want to get out of the goddamn car and that we're going to die, please. She's going to fucking kill us. We zip up another hill, the car groaning. When we reach the top, we launch into air. She doesn't break as we descend, and we go even faster. Lake Michigan, Caribbean blue and winking light, rears up in our faces. 
She's not going to stop, and for a second I feel something new, a rage that's equal parts hunger and fear. Do it, I think, do it. And my stomach's in my throat, but I'm so sick of saying no, be careful, stop, of teetering always on the edge, that I tell myself I'm ready to glimpse what's waiting on the other side of our daring. Let's keep going, she shouts, and later I think she was probably very, very high. The lake is bigger than the sky. The lake wants to swallow us up like sleep. After we go under, how long will it take me to kick out of the passenger side window, my flip-flops floating to the roof of the car, my lungs wheezing fire? Marlena is a bad swimmer. Will I be brave enough to leave her behind? But then we start to slow. The van swoops around the dotted line, careening onto the outer edges of its wheels. I slam against the glove compartment. We stop with a shudder and a squeal. The car vibrates around us, its parts ticking with relief. Oh, come on, Marlena says after too many seconds. Do you really think I'd let anything bad happen to you? She scrapes a set of fingernails against my kneecap, a small circle that opens outward, shivering through me. Sweat pearls the skin above her lip. I want to spit right in her face and walk away from everything she's made me do and all the ways I've changed so bad in that moment, looking at her sheeny skin, cheeks puffy from the pills, because what if she's not that extraordinary after all? Cat, she says, it's not a question. I blink the angry water in my eyes away. When I laugh, shaking my head, she laughs too, and the horrible thing between us disappears. We grab the plastic bag of snacks from the back seat and trip down the path to the beach. She's singing again. Already, I'm forgetting the feeling that seared through me. Do it, just do it already, you bitch. And reimagining the speeding car is fun. I chase her voice as light and flexible as Joni's through the verses of California. That's the last time I can remember hearing her sing that song, though it couldn't have been. California was one of her favorites, and it would be six more months before Marlena died. Drowned, technically, though her story doesn't end with us in Peter's van shooting through a guardrail. She would have liked that better. Instead, Marlena suffocated in less than six inches of ice-splintered river after making a series of choices that brought her to the woods on the outskirts of downtown Petoskey, a place she had no reason to be at twilight in November, wearing a coat from the Kmart clearance bin and a pair of chewed keds the police would make much of. Her tote bag was full of loose change that must have rattled as she walked against that unlabeled prescription bottle, her pay-as-you-go flip phone. When she tripped, if she tripped, and struck her head neatly, brutally, on a river boulder, it is assumed her body slid just so, unconscious, until her mouth and nostrils were submerged in water, the kind of depressing elliptical ending she would have made me reinvent. A period of my life so brief it was over almost as soon as it started, so why does it feel like the ghost is me now, and the real girl is trapped in that lost span of days? Only I'm not drowned. It's been 15 years, and still there's something I want to know. A question lodged so deep inside me, I don't know where it, it ends, and I begin. Could I have kept her from even one of the little steps that led to the one that killed her? The way she only slowed that sunny afternoon in the car, for me? Start the clock. Set it for a few weeks shy of one year. Set it for all the time we have. And on June 3rd, we hosted Triple Canopy Presents On Folly. Here, Lynn Tillman reads a couple chapters from her novella, Weird Fucks. I'll read the first chapter, which is called There's a Snake in the Grass. I'm on my way, one of four New York City college girls heading for Bar Harbor, Maine, to spend the summer as a chambermaid, waitress, or piano player. 
Bar Harbor is on Mount Desert Island, linked with the mainland by one bridge only, and we are warned if there is a fire, we might all be caught on the island. Only two lanes out, they caution in dour main tones, and the only way out. Bar Harbor is full of Higginses. There are three branches of the family, no one branch talking to the other two. We took rooms in Mrs. Higgins' guest house. Willie Higgins, a nephew to whom she didn't speak, fell in love with me. He was the town beatnik, an artist with a beard and bare feet. He would beat at the door at night and wake all four of us. I'd leave the bedroom Hope and I shared to be embraced by this impassioned island painter who would moan, I even love your dirty feet. I was in love with Johnny. Johnny was blonde and weak, his mother an alcoholic since his father died some years back. Johnny drove a custom-built racing car which had a clear plastic roof. He was a society boy. The days for me were filled with bed making and toilet cleaning. I watched the motel owner make passes at women twice my age who couldn't read. We had donuts together at 6 a.m. I would fall asleep on the beds I tried to make. At night, Hope would play cocktail piano in bars, and I'd wait for Johnny. Mrs. Higgins watched our comings and goings and spoke in an accent I'd now identify as Cockney. She might have been on the front porch the night Johnny picked me up in his mother's station wagon. We drove to the country club in the middle of the night and parked in the rough behind a tree. We made love on the front seat of the car. I actually thought of F. Scott Fitzgerald. He asked me to put my arms around him again. He whispered in my, my ear that although he knew many people, he didn't have many friends. He asked if I minded making love again. This would be my third time. The rich boys who were 16 and devoted to us New York City girls robbed a clothes store in Northeast Harbor. They brought the spoils to our apartment. Michael, a philosophy student and the boyfriend of one of us, insisted the stuff be returned within 24 hours or else he'd call the cops. The next night, Bill returned the tartan kilts and Scotland sweaters, Shetland sweaters that hadn't been missed. But he dropped his wallet in the store while bringing it all back, and somehow or other, the cops were at our door the night after. They spotted me as the ringleader. We went to Bangor for our trial and got fined $25 each as accessories. They called it a misdemeanor. The newspaper headline read, Campus Cuties Pull Kilt Caper. <laughs> I didn't really want to be a lawyer anyway, I thought. <laughs> Johnny never called back again. I dreamed that Mrs. Higgins and I were in her backyard. I pointed to a spot in the uncut, uncut lawn and said with alarm, there's a snake in the grass. A guy who hawked at carnivals wanted me to join the circus and run away with him. I was coming down from speed and learning to drink beer. Some nights we'd go up Cadillac Mountain and watch the sunrise. Bar Harbor is the easternmost point in America, the place where the sun rises first. I pined away the, sunny, the summer for Johnny, and just before heading back to New York, New York City, heard that his mother had engaged him 
to a proper society girl. And I'll read one other chapter. This is called A Pass for the Night. Yos and I had been living together eight months, first in London and then in Amsterdam, where he and I ran a cinema and a film cooperative. He was in Utrecht visiting his girlfriend, and I was in our room wearing my Victorian nightgown and suffering. <laughs> it was as if I were still taking speed, couldn't sleep, the night was ragged and endless. It wasn't easy to find sleeping pills or tranquilizers in Amsterdam. The Dutch were more into natural drugs like hash, later heroin. Pete was a painter who lived just around the corner. He'd been in a Godard film, was traveled, had a French wife who often left him. He was tough. He might have some pills. I threw my fur coat over my nightgown. It was winter. In Amsterdam, in Amsterdam, one can visit unannounced. I put on a pair of old-fashioned shoes and headed out in the middle of the night. It was snowing, all white out, like my nightgown. An American named Marty was with Pete. Both had similar reputations. It was odd to see them together. I had met Marty a week before on the night I'd received notice from Yost that he wanted to move out that he wanted us to live separately. He loved me, he said. I knew from the love letters left on our bed that Yos was fucking someone else. This is the stuff that tries our souls. Oh, we hadn't been happy. I felt I was being finished off, planed down. After his phone call, I went unhinged to Catherine's where Marty happened to be. I cried as if I knew him or as if he weren't there. Catherine handed me a joint. Misery became an awful joke. Marty, I laughed, do you know a man for me? His response, and I can't remember it exactly, indicated he was a man. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I couldn't understand why a man would want a woman in pain. I wasn't sophisticated about sadomasochism. That was a week ago, and here I am in Pete's studio with Marty, and I'm an inmate with a pass for the night. I kept on my heavy fur coat to hide my nightgown, which made my presence even more eccentric. We listened to D Dylan's latest album. Pete didn't have any pills, just hash. Marty said, I like your shoes. It was an erotic comment, <laughs> slightly perverse from his lips. He said he wanted to photograph me. I wish he had. I would have liked a picture like that, in the same way that I've always wanted to steal one of those US post office pictures of the 10 most wanted. <laughs> he stayed until 5 AM. We fucked. I was a ghost. He left to return to his Dutch wife, to awaken in their bed. I didn't care at all. Stay beautiful, he called out as he closed the door behind him. I stayed awake for several more nights. By the time Yos returned, I had accepted my destiny, the universe, and his leaving our room. I wanted him to go. He didn't. And then I accepted that, too. <laughs> Marty, seeing Yos and me together, never flirted with me again, though we remained friendly. I wasn't sure if it was disinterest or respect for another man's territory. I didn't really care either way. 
I was the one who finally moved out of the room on the Anya Lierstraat, Angel Street. But, but that was not the end. Thank you for listening, and thank you to the staff and volunteers at Housing Works Bookstore that make these events possible, as well as our event partners and attendees and anyone who's ever bought a book, a beer, a sandwich, or anything else at our bookstore. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV-AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses which sustain our efforts. You can visit the bookstore in person at 126 Crosby Street in downtown New York and online at housingworksbookstore.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and more, and keep up with the bookstore through our online newsletter. We'll be back with another episode every other week. Thanks again for listening.